Alex Mosed and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. And today we have a great example of a longtime incumbent, uh, maybe one that you wouldn't expect to be an incumbent, but they're definitely an incumbent, fighting back against the tech monopoly. And that is Walmart, incumbent, tech monopoly, Amazon. We have chronicled uh, Walmart's journey, their marketplace journey for years now. Honestly, starting back in 2009 when they tried to launch Walmart Marketplace as an internal initiative at Walmart, it failed. Seven years later, uh, they had a new CEO, Doug McMillan. He acquired Jet.com for a little over $3 billion. He got Mark Lore and Mark's team from Jet uh, made Mark the head of uh, e-commerce at Walmart. Doug, to his credit, has rebuffed critics and analysts that have scrutinized the level of investment um, at times a minimum of an additional billion dollars a year that Walmart has had to invest in their e-commerce transformation. And uh, they've had leadership changes, other executives on the C-suite, on the executive team depart uh, from Walmart who were not culturally or spiritually aligned with Walmart's need to embrace a marketplace business model. When they acquired Jet.com in 2016, Walmart opened the fewest stores it had opened in 25 years. And so that goes to show you the the different change in thinking that Doug and the leadership team that he's now built uh, around him have had to embrace to say, we're going, the money needs to come from somewhere. We can't continue to invest in opening new stores uh, we need to invest in e-commerce. Um, and it's been working. And it's been working really well for them. They have continued to beat uh, their growth targets, uh, growing at you know somewhere between 30 to 40% year over year um, when you look at their quarterly growth for their digital e-commerce sales, which is a pretty big deal. They're doing over $500 billion in revenue in total at Walmart. And... Uh, by some estimates now, e-commerce might be approaching somewhere around 10% of their sales. So, you know, you could be getting close to around $50 billion in sales. They don't break it out too clearly, um, but we do have an idea of growth and certain stats here or there. Um, as a part of e-commerce, grocery is bucketed into that. Grocery when you order digitally. So digital grocery ordering. That has been a huge boon to Walmart's uh, digital, you know, uh, um, initiatives here, and it's gone very well for them. So the news that we have today is Walmart Plus is launching. This is actually supposed to come out in February or March of 2020. It was delayed and pushed back because of COVID. It's now we have some more information on it, and it should be coming out shortly here. Basically. It looks like it's going to be a $98 annual membership compared to, I think, Amazon Prime is at a buck 20 these days. They are basically promising free same-day grocery delivery. That seems to be one of the biggest uh, uh, kind of advantages of doing this. There's other perks around um, like higher priority to get to get delivery or, or pickup options, discounts on fuel at Walmart gas stations. Um, early access to some products. But I think the real thing here is is the grocery. So let's kind of look at this offering versus some other options here. Because Walmart already has 
uh, free two-day delivery on millions of items. This was something that's come out over the past year or so. They've made a big push into this. So whereas Amazon Prime, right, to get that Amazon Prime free shipping, you have to be a member of Amazon Prime, pay that $120 annual fee. Walmart was already giving that away in a bid to, you know, be more competitive with Amazon. So that doesn't come with Walmart Plus. You kind of already had that. Uh, I think maybe there's like a $35 minimum order fee or something like that. Nothing too crazy. Let's look at Instacart. Instacart has something called Instacart Express. So if we're kind of, you know, if really the, the big thing with Walmart Plus is free same day grocery delivery, Instacart is the platform version of grocery delivery. Um, Instacart Express is $99 a year, and you get free uh, same-day grocery delivery on orders of at least $35 or more. You can also do a monthly plan for 10 bucks a month if if you don't want to make the annual commitment. Really, Walmart Plus, their big thing here is grocery. The interesting thing about grocery for Walmart is it's not a marketplace. And, and because when, when uh, there was the corona spike earlier on the show, we covered um, in April, right? We saw Walmart digital grocery market share was actually right around 50%. And Instacart was right around 25%, 30%. And then basically the two companies swapped places. Instacart went up to about 50%. This is digital grocery ordering. And then Walmart went down to about 25, 30% and they swapped. And basically the reason why is you had such a huge influx of demand when everyone was stay at shelter at home. Walmart has linear grocery, which means all the grocery supplies are coming from a Walmart store. Instacart platform version, they can get supply from any or theoretically any and every grocery store. Right. So when you have that influx of demand, you need huge supply on the other side of that. Walmart was not able to meet that demand. And so you saw their share of digital grocery delivery actually go down and Instacart's go up. And that's actually how their Instacart was able to hit profitability for the first time ever was when they actually got to roughly a 50% market share threshold. That goes to show you the economics and that winner take all dynamic and the importance of basically being in the number one slot as that marketplace leader. Because if you're not there, you're not profitable. And so now it took that much boost to Instacart for them to just hit break even. Pretty astounding. So grocery is the is kind of the killer app here as we've seen. We've seen Amazon make a big push um, like buying a company called Whole Foods a number of years ago. So we've seen Amazon understands the importance of grocery. They actually own roughly 10% of Instacart, by the way, fun, funnily enough, when they bought Whole Foods, Whole Foods had invested in Instacart many a year ago. Um, so anyway, Amazon understands the importance of grocery. Amazon Fresh, going back to our Walmart Plus uh, comparison here, also gives you free grocery delivery through via Amazon Fresh in eligible regions. So it's not everywhere. Oh, by the way, Walmart Plus is not necessarily a national service. So that it's probably going to be a regional kind of launch, at least initially. So Amazon Fresh, you get free uh, grocery delivery through Amazon Prime anyway. So if you, if you kind of think about the Walmart Plus offering... It, it's just bringing them to parity um, with really Amazon Prime. 
Amazon Prime is also now going to give you the media and the entertainment offerings, right? They have Amazon Prime Video. Uh, they have Twitch. They are making a you know a bunch of other media investments. Walmart Plus is kind of trying to do that, but in a very small niche way. So Amazon Prime... Uh, you know, is a number of years ahead in terms of how are we bolstering our offerings outside of just, uh, you know, physical product purchases, right? Whether it's through Amazon.com or Amazon Fresh to, to be a few steps ahead here. But this is a huge step for Walmart to really bring this parity, to bring this membership program. I'm sure in this membership program, they're also going to try and bolster, you know, for example, next day shipping, right? Um, that's, that, that continues to be the game amongst these, these marketplace and retailers is how can you just continue to accelerate shipping? Uh, same day for grocery, two day for our other products. Okay, now how can you do next day shipping, right? Um, continue to kind of move that that goalpost closer and closer to the customer. Um, so it's a considerable step. You need a lot of scale to pull this off. You need a lot of infrastructure in place. You need a lot of really good technology systems, delivery capabilities, unit economics, right? Like you need a lot of density to be able to do something like this and have the unit economics work out in such a way that you're not hemorrhaging money. Now, Walmart is still losing money, I think, on their e-commerce operations. Uh, they're not closing that billion-dollar gap in the course of a year, especially given the pandemic that's going on. So they're still losing money, but they're doing this. You know, they're continuing to invest. They're continuing to innovate. They're continuing to keep um, pushing at 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 offering parity with what Amazon is trying to do. It's a wonderful thing to see, especially when you consider that Amazon has had a 26-year head start founded in 1994. Walmart, in earnest, really started this marketplace kind of competition initiative in earnest, you know, four years ago when they acquired Jet.com in the middle of 2016. So it's really just been four years, but it's great to see what one of the traditional incumbent retailers has been able to pull off in four years. And I think as we see these things play out, will Walmart beat Amazon. Um, no, I don't think they'll beat Amazon. They're not going to be the number one player. But as we know, with platform dynamics, there's room for two winners. You can be number one or number two. And we can see this with iOS and Android. You can see it with Uber and Lyft, with Google search and kind of Bing, although that's not as favorable of a number two slot. So you have different Different network effects, different supply side considerations, different, you know, fulfillment considerations here, which help drive how much, how close are the, is the number two player to the number one player, iOS and Android. It's actually pretty close. Google search and Bing, pretty wide discrepancy. Uber and Lyft, a little bit closer, but still pretty wide gap. It'll be interesting to see how much Walmart can narrow that gap. I think they're going to be able to, to get there, uh, given how much scale they have in their retail stores and people coming into the stores, uh, which obviously took a huge blow because of the pandemic, but they have been making investments for years now leading up to uh, coronavirus. And that is certainly benefiting them elsewhere. Now we saw, we saw the dip in the grocery part of the business because that actually is the one part of their business, which is not marketplace. Um, that supply is specifically constrained to their retail presence. Which could be interesting. I wonder if Walmart does try to explore a marketplace model in grocery. I think that could be very interesting. Um, 
but uh but but would mean that they would have to go buy Instacart or something like that, which honestly, in the grand scheme of things, I think they were valued at maybe twelve or fifteen billion dollars. That's not that big of uh, of an acquisition for Walmart. What, what's their um, market cap at three hundred fifty seven billion dollars? I mean, it's a lot of money. But if 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 the team can make the business case to say, hey, we should marketplace grocery, and 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 we need to really double down on grocery. That to me would be the way to really double down on grocery is marketplace it, right? They've marketplaced the rest of their business um, and are making huge strides to try and get more sellers, get more inventory, broaden that product catalog online. Why not do the same thing uh, with, uh, with grocery? And now Instacart is expanding into other verticals as we spoke about a few episodes ago. They're going into... Um, liquor and uh, pharmacy and drug delivery. The the two other things that you need right away in addition to groceries. Um, so anyway, this is a, a great sign for Walmart. I think their transformation is going to go down as one of the best business transformations in the past 50 years. Full stop. The ability for a linear incumbent retailer to embrace a platform marketplace business model do it via M&A, right? They tried it from scratch 2009. They did it via M&A with Jet um, and actually capture the number two spot. Yeah, that's a win. That's a big win. And we'll see how close they can they can close the gap with Amazon. But even being an, uh, a, a relatively strong number two is a very big win considering what's happening to every other retailer. Every other retailer Brooks Brothers just went bankrupt today. Every other retailer that has neglected e-commerce uh, is literally going bankrupt, literally going out of business. Um, so very interesting and, and very great example of, of, of how that strong leadership, that conviction at the top to deliver and then invest and continue to invest and see this through. It's, it's working and it's paying dividends and rightly so. Um, really great to see. So Next topic is about the other side of that aisle, that large tech monopoly, our friend Amazon. Government agency has $6 billion market with three e-marketplaces. So the GSA, General Services Administration, it's kind of like a portal for government agencies to buy stuff. It's like version 0.1 of marketplace, but like horrible marketplace. And so now they've said, hey, we are going to award three contracts to Amazon Business, Thermo Fisher Scientific, that's an interesting one, and Overstock.com. You know, my first reaction to this is, where is eBay? How did eBay miss out on this? Whoa, that's a, that's a big miss, eBay. I mean, what was going on there? Okay. Now, and Thermo Fisher beat out eBay. Mm, okay, that's it. I mean, there's an incumbent for you. Thermo Fisher doing marketplace has now a lock on one of three portals for six billion dollars worth of purchases to go through their marketplace. I don't think they have a marketplace, by the way. Means they got to go buy. Overstock does have marketplace stuff going on. Amazon Business, obviously, marketplace. So what's interesting here is, um. This congresswoman, uh, this was on July 1st. She's on this, um, one of these committees, the, uh, one of these like defense committees and wanted to make an amendment to this budget bill 
which would influence this pilot program that the GSA launched. And let's listen in to, to what she has to say and, and what kind of amendment she wanted. And uh, was in the fiscal year 20 NDAA that directed the pilot tests to include a platform that would not allow the portal provider to also act as a seller on the platform in order to allow a fair test of different models. GSA chose not to do that. What we have now is an e-marketplace platform provider that can offer its own products with the potential to eliminate competition in the way my small business is feared. My amendment seeks to fix that flaw, protect competition, and protect small businesses. My amendment, amendment simply says that a company may not both get paid to run an online sales platform for the federal government and use information they gather from that platform in order to compete against those participating in the platform in order to undercut them and sell their own merchandise. It's kind of interesting, right? Funnily enough, I mean, we covered it many, many an episode ago on, on the show. Devin Wenick, the former CEO of eBay, who was basically ousted by their activist investor, Elliot Management, famously or semi-famously tweeted at, Am- at Jeff Bezos when Jeff when Jeff's annual letter from, from April of 2019 kind of uh, threw some serious shade at eBay. Jeff was basically comparing their growth of third-party seller sales uh, compared to eBay and was basically saying, yeah, we destroyed you, eBay. Um, And so Devin's response was that, well, we don't compete against our sellers. And so eBay doesn't have this idea of first-party sales. So basically, you can just think about it as vertically integrated, right? Um, where the platform, the marketplace has third-party sellers. And now the marketplace acts as a seller, first party, competing with their third-party sellers, right? First party, third party. Um, We have seen first-party sales at Amazon go up. Now, as a proportion to third-party sales, third-party sales as a proportion of overall GMV have eclipsed that of first party. But what's interesting here is that is where many platforms get into trouble. It's also where many platforms can um, maximize their profits and their, uh, you know, basically, yeah, profit generation engine is to compete more aggressively with their producers. We've covered that at Infinitum on the show with Tim O'Reilly on, right? We would say platforms, they take advantage of the producer, of suppliers first, not consumers. Now, in eBay, which doesn't vertically integrate and is not competing with their sellers, doesn't have that same problem. eBay's still doing almost maybe $100 billion in GMV internationally. They have a huge international business. They're also doing like auto car sales, which is a little bit different of a model. So when you look at it, they're still... They still have a th- at least a thirty or forty billion dollar GMV business in the United States. It's, it's, a, it's a material marketplace business. So, a where was eBay on this? Um, they need to be channeling their their dollars a little bit differently here. And the reason why I say that is so this Congresswoman is from Texas, Representative Escobar. She goes on to say in this that the chairman of her committee did not agree with this amendment she had drafted. I guess there had previously been support on the committee for this, as she had just kind of mentioned, and then the chairman shot it down. And so who is the chairman of this committee? Chairman Adam Smith from a state called Washington. Um, 
What district do you think Adam Smith represents in the state of Washington? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, in Washington, 9th con- Congressional District, which kind of looks like, kind of looks like where Amazon and, and Microsoft are based out of, right? Interesting. So, you have the representative from the Seattle, Washington area. Yeah, it now covers Bellevue, Southeast Seattle, uh, and Mercer Island here. The guy, the chairman of this committee who shot down the amendment, which would change the, the GSA pilot to uh, require that there be a marketplace that doesn't have a basically a vertically integrated business model that competes with its third-party sellers, which again, what we've spoken about on the show many times is that what Amazon, from an antitrust standpoint, they're taking advantage of third-party sellers and they're competing unfairly with them. And we have countless examples of this on the show that we've gone over over now over a year. Um, and so if you had, say, an eBay in there, which is not vertically integrated, which only has third-party sellers, that would be an interesting pilot, wouldn't it? I would be interested to see, right? Do you have severely adverse results on an eBay pilot marketplace for the GSA versus the Amazon pilot marketplace. Now, Amazon's argument to keep first-party sales is that they need to be a market maker in key product categories that might be underrepresented by third-party sellers, right? So they say, hey, we need to make sure that the marketplace has what you need, government, and we are going to guarantee that you have what you need because we can be a first-party seller and we can fulfill product on the marketplace if our third-party sellers can't fulfill. I mean, it's kind of a laughable statement, but that is their argument. There is some truth to it. And if you look at the growth of Amazon versus eBay, you can kind of see that truth, right? Amazon has been able to plow into new product categories with this hybrid approach of first-party selling and third-party selling. They can be a market maker and go and expand and get product inventory and basically subsidize the expansion into new verticals. We're seeing them do this with Amazon Business a lot. Well, they will go and act as the first party seller in Amazon Business, break into a new vertical. And then once they have demand there, then they can let third party sellers expand the product catalog and so on and so forth. Um, So you can see that. Now, it doesn't mean that it, that is it automatically going to fail. And if you have a, a large player like an eBay that has a pretty sizable network of third-party sellers, um, you know, are the prices really that much higher if you have purely a 3P marketplace in this pilot program? Probably not. But hey, isn't that the whole point of a pilot? Let's see. Let's test it out. Unfortunately, uh, this congresswoman's thing was, was killed, this amendment was killed because the representative from Seattle... The chairman of the committee killed it. Huh. God. You know, what what are you going to do? Yeah. You know, Amazon's tentacles are everywhere. So I agree with her. Um, you know, maybe she should have tried to not go directly after Amazon, but say, hey, let's have let's let's have eBay in here. Let's make sure that we have at least one pure play marketplace in addition to an Amazon. Um, I'm not too familiar with how Overstock is running their thing and, and what Fisher is doing. I don't even think they do marketplace, 
But eBay would be a good example of, uh, of a pure play, third-party seller-only marketplace. And then compare and contrast, right? Do the pilot. Uh, does the government get charged a lot more money by sourcing stuff on eBay versus Amazon? Because if not, then you would just go with the 3P-only model in eBay. Isn't that the whole point of a pilot? I don't know. Okay, Escobar, you know, let's talk. Why don't you call out Adam for being corrupt? Uh, sorry, Adam, but I don't know. It just... Too too much of a coincidence these days. Okay, next topic is <laughs> Huawei. Last episode on the show, we had a sad ending to the show. We mourned the loss of Hong Kong's freedom, um, and now you are seeing reverberations of that. We spoke about the Splinternet. We've spoken about Splinternet many times in the show. Uh, you are seeing that reverberate now across. Uh, other parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, with Singapore. Singapore is divesting themselves of Huawei infrastructure and going over to Ericsson and Nokia. Full disclosure, I've bought some shares in Ericsson and Nokia because I think that they will benefit from basically these, uh, you know, geopolitical forces that are that are deliberately trying to undo the government subsidy of Huawei, the Chinese government subsidy of Huawei, and trying, you know, Western, more Western governments trying to push um, these alternatives, Nokia and Ericsson, as opposed to the uh, the Chinese version in Huawei. This article doesn't have it, but what was really interesting to me is maybe it was, uh, you know, Pompeo, the Secretary of State, basically he was saying that... Um, the like telecom, you know, it's all about telecom infrastructure. This is, these are telecom towers, right? Um, internet infrastructure, cell phone infrastructure. It's not software and that kind of stuff, but everything, all the soft stuff that software runs on is being put on top of 5G and this kind of stuff. Anyway, Pompeo was saying that the telecom industry is like a $90 billion industry and China has assigned a $100 billion subsidy to it. So, so they've basically said, we are going to subsidize the entire, and more than the entire, the industry is worth $90 billion. It means $90 billion is spent on uh, telecom infrastructure annually, and they're going to provide a $100 billion subsidy to Huawei, uh, which means that they absolutely want everyone to get cheap infrastructure from Huawei subsidized by the Chinese government. Okay, you know, the the coincidences just continue to repeat themselves on today's episode. I wonder if there's any ulterior motive as to why the Chinese government would want to subsidize telecom infrastructure so, so, so aggressively um, and, and, and now have their towers into places like the UK, Europe, Singapore. I wonder if they can eavesdrop on that. Um, like now, Pompeo is also saying that, he, that the US is considering to uh, ban TikTok in the United States. Now, this was just kind of an off-the-cuff remark that he made. It wasn't a, an announcement on TikTok and we're launching an investigation. He was kind of asked a question about this and said, we're considering it. And then the news went crazy. If you think about it just from a reciprocity standpoint and you say, okay, well, if, hmm, if US tech companies can't launch their products in China, but Chinese tech companies can launch their products in the US, 
is that fair? The answer is no, it's not fair. It's pretty straightforward. Even you get rid of this whole thing around privacy and, you know, what what is being done with the data. I mean, these are real concerns. We've seen the USCIS. Did I get that acronym right? I think so. United States, yeah, I guess so. One of these government agencies strike down the Chinese acquisition of the um, LGBT dating app called uh, Grindr. This Chinese company wanted to buy this. U.S. government said, no, you can't buy it. Sensitive information in there. So think you're a government official. You're using this LGBT dating app. You know, that could be sensitive information that that you don't want publicly disclosed or you certainly don't want in the hands of the Chinese government. They could use to exploit you or have leverage on you or whatever the case may be. So they struck that down. There is precedent of that. Now, that was a U.S. company being acquired by a Chinese company. This is a Chinese company entering the U.S. market. And oh boy, do I feel bad for that former Disney executive, Kevin Mayer, or Meyer, uh, who is now the CEO of TikTok. And I mean, we've covered a, a lot on the show. There's just a lot of issues with TikTok. There's a lot of issues. Um, I can tell you this much. If TikTok is being looked into... Zoom should also be looked into. Now, Zoom is a different thing where technically it's a U.S. company, but all the engineering and product development is from China. Um, so TikTok is a clear-cut issue. It's a Chinese company, product and engineering in China, entering the U.S. market. India just banned it. So that's a little clear-cut, but then you're going to wade into more of these gray waters around Zoom, which has had now multiple run-ins with issues with censorship and the Chinese government. Um, <clears throat> so last topic I have here is, um, FOS, which is freedom of speech. The first amendment, uh, that, that we as Americans have a civil right of freedom of speech. And, you know, I've spoken a lot on the show about, um, this shift of, a systemic initiative to try and control speech on content platforms, on social media platforms, and how holistically that's bad. Um, Even if it means that you have more offensive or more uh, harmful content online. I use the example of President Bolsonaro, uh, president of Brazil, his post, which was clearly false, saying that basically coronavirus wasn't a problem or wasn't an issue. Don't worry about it. And then Facebook took that down and that that shouldn't happen. He's the duly elected president of Brazil. Let him own the fact that he's posting fake news. Let kind of due course take place. And for the citizens and people get grumpy at him and say, you know, how are you posting this stuff? You know, you're making the wrong decisions here. It's much better to have more speech rather than less speech. And the reason I bring this up is, well, I've spoken about cancel culture. I've spoken about cancel culture against Facebook, ironically enough. Um, And now there is this article floating around. There's a bunch of these kind of academics and authors, um, some economists, basically coming out against cancel culture. So saying here, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. 
And there's a bunch of people that signed this letter. Now these people are coming under uh, under fire for having signed this thing. So this is funny. So this guy's from the Atlantic. He was saying, you know, he signed on to this thing. Then the Atlantic had this article from a few months ago, which says internet speech will never go back to normal in the debate over freedom versus control of the global network. China was largely correct and the U.S. was wrong. Yep, you read that right. You heard that right. The U.S. was wrong. There's a little blurb in here. In the great debate of the past two decades about freedom versus control of the network, China was largely right and the United States was largely wrong. Significant monitoring and speech control are inevitable components of a mature and flourishing internet, and governments must play a large role in these practices to ensure that the internet is compatible with a society's norms and values. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I could read it again. I continue to read that, and I'm continuously dumbfounded at how this is the stuff that's being published. Uh, This guy's a Harvard Law School professor, Jack Goldsmith, I was talking about this with some colleagues and this guy, Jack Goldsmith, he was the former assistant attorney general under George Bush. And Jack Goldsmith, I believe, is the guy who uh, had something to do with illegal wiretapping under the Bush administration. And uh, yeah, warrantless wiretapping. That's that was that was uh, Jack Goldsmith's claim to fame. So. Now, this is on the both sides. There's there's a lot of people that signed on to this letter um, that uh, that I guess was published in HarperCollins or something, um, Harper's. So a lot of these writers are, Noam Chomsky is on here, for example, um, are would align more left of center. Jack Goldsmith, right of center. And so it, it's just odd why you have on both sides of the aisle, you have uh, liberals and conservatives that are trying to push. Actually, in this case, the the liberals are trying to 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 say no. We want to push back against cancel culture. That article is the conservative uh, former assistant attorney general saying we want more uh, control and censorship. And now, unfortunately, the people that signed on to this letter from that just came out are becoming under a lot of fire. J.K. Rowling is on here, uh, our favorite Harry Potter author. Um, and so it's just really unfortunate to see articles like this thing from, you know, that, that was published in The Atlantic saying that China was right, that we need more control. We need the government to take more control. And, you know, it's just full stop wrong. Uh, we don't need more control. We don't need more government involvement. This isn't a left or right issue. Uh, this is all about freedom of speech. This is about our, our, our rights, our amendments, our constitutionally approved and provided rights as Americans in this country. And, and now you're seeing it not just in the United States. You're seeing China take those rights away from people in Hong Kong. You're seeing you're just seeing so much control now over and and using it via these tech platform monopolies. And that's the scary part of this. Um, you know, if you rewind the clock, maybe 10, 11 years ago, if you remember when BlackBerry, I might be dating myself a little bit here. 
But to our younger audience, BlackBerry was the dom, you know, was much more dominant than the iPhone back in, you know, 07, 08 times. And there was a huge battle with BlackBerry uh, Messenger, their chat app. And all these foreign governments wanted to have the ability to read the messages going on on this chat app, which that chat app, by the way, was a platform. It's a communication platform. And there was a huge battle between BlackBerry and these governments. These governments wanted to basically... Uh, rescind all of BlackBerry's contracts in that country if BlackBerry didn't provide the encryption keys to those governments. And there's a showdown around the world. And what the U.S. should be is a bastion of freedom and free speech. We should be supporting our tech monopolies abroad when they come under fire from foreign governments to, uh, f- to basically push and... Uh, put these controls on these platforms in foreign governments, right? We should be helping our tech platforms thrive and bring this value to other societies. We've seen Vietnam and other Southeast Asian companies put the screws on Facebook and Facebook comply. Um, so hopefully we will come out of this and 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 have clarity on the importance of not controlling these tech platforms um, and not come out of this with this kind of cancel culture, government control mentality. Um, I, I, I don't think it's the majority of America. I think it's a very vocal uh, minority in the country that want to have more control and want to shape the nature of the conversation. And that's bad. We want the conversation, even if it's ugly, even if um, it can rub people the wrong way. There are boundaries to that, and I've spoken about that on the show. We need to have a debate about where where are those lines, but where the nature of the conversation is today is way beyond those lines, and it's now much more into trying to control and shape the scope of the conversation as opposed to relegating at the guardrails uh, extreme inappropriate behavior. We are way past that point, and it's unfortunate. I think... I think we will come out of this stronger. I think we will be able to take a step back from this, look at what happened and, and, and move back to a, on the spectrum of openness and freedom. Uh, but it's going to take, it's going to take some long, hard fought battles to get there. Uh, I will certainly fight that fight and I hope all of you will as well. That's it for us today on winner take all. Thank you for joining me and I will talk to you next week.